This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. I'm Anthony Cotton. As the calendar turns to 2019, we look back at one of our favorite series from the past year, Memories of 1968, Civil Rights, Assassinations, Vietnam. The impact of those turbulent days still reverberated 50 years later, particularly for Coloradans who had a front-row seat as history was being made. We heard some of their stories and also featured local artists and their interpretation of the music from that year. Has anybody here seen my old friend Abraham? Can you tell me where he's gone? He freed a lot of people, but it seems As Jennifer Jane Nicely and Erica Ryan performed their version of Abraham, Martin, and John, we begin with a conversation Ryan Warner had with Sheldon Steinhauser, a Denver resident and civil rights activist who marched alongside Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. in Alabama. It begins with a segment from the speech King delivered on the last night of his life. Well, I don't know what will happen now. We've got some difficult days ahead. But it really doesn't matter with me now. Because I've been to the mountaintop. I don't mind. Like anybody, I would like to live a long life. Longevity has its place. But I'm not concerned about that now. I just want to do God's will. And he's allowed me to go up to the mountain. And I've looked over. And I've seen the promised land. I may not get there with you. But I want you to know the night that we as a people will get to the promised land. So I'm happy tonight. I'm not worried about anything. I'm not fearing any man. Mine eyes have seen the glory of the coming of the Lord. That is from April 3rd, 1968, at the Mason Temple in Memphis, Tennessee. The next day, King was assassinated at the Lorraine Motel, just about two miles away. First off, where were you when you learned Dr. King had been killed? Well, it was a weekday, and... uh, I was in my office and uh, got that stunning news that I'm sure shocked everyone. It was just, I I just really couldn't believe it. He he was such a powerful figure in all our lives. And uh, it it was really a terrible, tragic moment. This was in Denver? This was in Denver, yeah. You worked for many years with the Anti-Defamation League. Uh, going back now, how was it that you found yourself uh, with Dr. King in the South? Well, I had been very active, as were many Coloradans, uh, in the cause of civil rights for a number of years. And um, in the 60s, uh, one of the people on my staff actually went down to um, 
Oxford in order to help with voter registration. And uh, one of the uh, the people who hosted her put a gun on her dresser in her bedroom and said, hope you know how to use this because that's the danger of the uh, that was uh, there for voter registration workers. And we worked very hard for the passage uh, of the federal civil rights uh, legislation in 1964. So we were very involved from the time I came to Colorado in 1957, right uh, all through that period, in trying to uh, improve the climate and, and uh, for civil rights here in the state. And why did you want to march in particular? You know, like I'm sure most Coloradans, I'd been watching all the pictures on TV and seeing the the brutality that was taking place um, against African Americans in the South, particularly, and the 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 killings and the uh, the beatings and the use of dogs and the fire hosing and all the other things that were going on. I think media made a tremendous difference at that time and. And so when the call went out for Coloradans to join with people from all over the country to come down and provide a show of support for what uh, King was doing in the South and for voter registration and to provide support for the black citizens who were you know, living in that area, uh, we organized uh, a um, – a, car, a plane load of uh, about 100 citizens from Colorado wow. and decided that we were going to join. The first march, really the bloody one that most people remembered, um, occurred on March 7th, 1965. And you marched with King about two weeks later. Here he is speaking a day before the protesters reached the state capitol. Dr. King, how are things shaping up now for tomorrow? Things are shaping up beautifully. We have people coming in from all over the country. I suspect that we will have representatives from almost every state in the Union and naturally a large number of people from the state of Alabama. And we hope to see and we plan to see the greatest witness for freedom ever taken place that has ever taken place on the steps of the capital of any state in the South. And, this whole and indeed, Colorado well represented, as you say, among the 50 states at that march. Uh, I think we, we hear the word march and we don't necessarily have a specific feel for what that entailed. Uh, can, can you bring us into what the march was like? I, I know that it spanned several days and that you might stop and sleep on a farm. Uh, what, what, what did it smell like, feel like, look like? Well, the the Colorado group joined up with the the march uh, at an encampment um, the night before we uh, marched into Montgomery. And so uh, we got there, uh, we flew down, and uh, we were escorted uh, to the encampment uh, by a state uh, patrol car where one of the officers gave us the finger, which didn't exactly make us feel very comfortable about about being there. We had uh, one of our uh, people was uh, almost run down uh, by a truck driver. And uh, so it was, uh, you know, welcome to Montgomery at that time. But we went to the encampment first um, uh, after we arrived by plane overnight. And uh, the scene of all of these people, uh, just 
every, you know, race and and ancestry and uh, religion, uh, everything. It was just a powerful scene to see all these people assembled getting ready for the morning march. And so some of us walked to the front of the encampment where Dr. King was sitting um, with a couple of uh, his supporters, and we just introduced ourselves. And, uh, and I said, you know, Dr. King, we're here from Colorado to support the wonderful work you're doing here. And, you know, he, he got up and shook our hands and he said, thank you very much for coming in a very humble kind of a tone, which is what he was. And just meeting him, the, the whole feeling that here was the center of this movement, thousands of people, and we had this opportunity just to go up and introduce ourselves and, and get to meet him. It was, it was one of the powerful moments in my life. I understand that you didn't want to be perceived as what you call a 24-hour hero. What does that mean to you? Well, what it means to me is when we walked on the march, uh, started to walk into Montgomery, we had any number of African-American citizens on their porches and coming down to us uh, holding their water cans and cups because they knew what we didn't know yet, and that was that every water spigot in town had been turned off so that we wouldn't have access to water. So that you would remain thirsty. We after would remain a walk. thirsty. We would be punished for what we were doing, and we thought to ourselves, "We are so great." They were so grateful to us for being there to support it. We were the ones that were very grateful to them. We can just imagine all the uh, filming that was going on and identifying who these very gutsy blacks were who were doing this, and we didn't know what would happen to them after. So. You know, that was those were powerful reminders that we're here, we're here, 24-hour heroes, as, as uh, we used to call ourselves. Um, we go back to the safety of Colorado, but they remain there um, as victims of uh, all of the oppressive forces that were going on. So I'll never forget that moment. It was so amazing. That was civil rights activist Sheldon Steinhauser of Denver. He marched alongside Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. in Alabama three years before King's death. Coming up next, a woman from Greeley and the story of a 1968 presidential campaign that helped shape a still vibrant political career. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. Has anybody here seen my old friend Back with Colorado Matters from CPR News. I'm Anthony Cotton. 1968 was one of the most tumultuous years in U.S. history. Throughout 2018, we told stories of Coloradans whose lives were shaped by the events of that time. People like Polly Baca, 
She spoke with Ryan about being in Los Angeles, California, on June 5th, 1968. My goodness, it was an incredible day. It was a beautiful day, and so we were all celebrating. Baca, who's from Colorado, was on Robert F. Kennedy's presidential campaign staff. It was the day of the crucial California primary, and she'd walked precincts in East Los Angeles getting out the Hispanic vote. That night, we found out that there were five precincts in East Los Angeles where every single Democrat registered to vote voted, and they all voted for Robert Kennedy. The day culminated in a victory party at L.A.'s Ambassador Hotel, where Senator Kennedy, 42 years old, acknowledged his staff. My thanks to all of you, and now it's on to Chicago, and let's win there. Thank you Polly Baca was near the stage, and when the speech was over, she and Kennedy headed downstairs to where another crowd was waiting. Each took a separate path. Kennedy went through the hotel kitchen and no further— Baca made it to the second party where television sets were blaring. People said there were shots. Somebody's been shot. Somebody's been shot. The senator's been shot. It was that kind of atmosphere. And then it was just all, you know, panic. Baca, who went on to become a Colorado state senator, joined me to reflect on RFK's assassination 50 years ago. She says it led to a tangle of emotions. Immediately, I was scared. I was devastated. I couldn't believe it. You know, shock, just... It couldn't happen again. It couldn't happen again. That is earlier in the year Martin Luther King had been shot. And then, of course, John Kennedy, John Kennedy, his brother must have been on your mind from 1963. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I had actually worked in John Kennedy's campaign in 1960 as an intern. And then his brother died yeah. those years later. And and you say you you were a bit scared as well. I mean, I imagine it it wasn't clear if the... It was, you know, because they didn't know who had done it. And there was a rumor that went around that, that it was a Mexican-American. And it was devastating. It was scary because I was working as the national deputy director for Viva Kennedy. And we had a lot of Spanish-speaking, monolingual Spanish-speaking farm workers there that had helped us. At the hotel? Yeah, at the hotel, celebrating. So to have this happen was absolutely devastating. It actually wound up being a Palestinian, Sirhan Sirhan, right? But there was a rumor that it was a Latino. Initially, the rumor was that it was Mexican-American. There was another rumor that it was uh, somehow a woman in a blue and white polka dot dress that was involved. I don't know where these rumors came from. It was floating all over the place. That night, there were five people shot in addition to the senator. Not something I think most people remember. I don't think they do. But it was of concern that night because our friend who had been shot in the head had been taken to the hospital. So we went to the hospital to visit him. Is that the same hospital where the senator was? I think all of them were taken to the same hospital. But the senator, by the time we got there, an internist, I believe, was the one that told us that that he had died, but they revived him and took him to another hospital. So we knew that the campaign was over. And the others who were shot, uh, not including the senator, of course, uh, survived. Yes, all of the five that had been shot, in addition to the senator, all of them survived. You knew the campaign was over. What did RFK represent to you? Hope. At that point in history, uh, there was a great deal of discrimination against Mexican-Americans. I had grown up in northern Colorado. Theaters were segregated, the churches were segregated, and Mexican-Americans were were always on the sidelines. And there were signs like, no Mexicans or dogs allowed. The senator represented a time and an opportunity for us to become full 
partners in this society. Senator Robert Kennedy had an incredible heart. He was, you know, just concerned about ordinary human beings. There were two sides, I think, though, to Definitely. him. Like, <laughs> as I've read the history, you know, the, the side you're describing, but also... Um, he could kind be of the, very ruthless. Yeah, sort of the attack dog. He was. He was a pit bull when it came to issues that he was, for example, with the mafia. You know, he was absolutely determined to break up the mafia. Do you recall an interaction with him that you could relay? Oh, well, sure. <laughs> Many times. I guess uh, my my favorite was when uh, I first was getting on the campaign. And I was asked to staff a meeting that he was having at his home for, you know, leaders of the poor whites, poor blacks, poor uh, Latinos, poor Native Americans. These were the grassroots leaders of these different communities. And they all came and we all were put in, it wasn't the kitchen, but it was off the kitchen where there was this long table and all these little Kennedy kids running around. They were the cutest things. And the senator and, and Ted uh, his brother went around and said hello to everyone, and then they said a few words. And the senator, Bobby, ended his presentation by saying, you know, I'm going to win this campaign, but I want to owe my favors to you. But I can't do that unless you go out and help me win this campaign so I can owe my favors to you. You know, and, and, and He I wanted to be beholden so, to you, in other yes, words. Yes, and uh-huh. I felt that was so wise because he really inspired these grassroots leaders to go home and do just that. You were involved as well at the funeral in Arlington. Yes. It was an incredible evening. I actually was flown to New York for the funeral itself and then flown to D.C. to be part of security at Arlington Cemetery. At the interment. Yeah. And we waited all day for the train because the train was hours late, you know. and The train we, from New York. So when they got there, people lined up the walkway and lit candles. It was incredible. It was beautiful. And it was moving, and it was spiritual, and it was heartbreaking. When it was all over, we were able to go to the site itself. And I personally was able to uh, touch and kiss the casket and say my own goodbyes to the senator. What went through your mind at that moment? Do you remember? Oh, gosh. You know, it's something about losing uh, this person who you had so much faith in and that you knew would be so good for our country. For me, I gave up on politics. I called and gave notice on my apartment in D.C. I was leaving Washington. I just didn't want to have anything more to do with it. I was so, so devastated. But Polly Baga, history tells us you changed your mind eventually because <laughs> yeah. you become a state senator here in Colorado. You're very involved still in Democratic politics. Yes. What brings you back in? The problems are still there. You know, the passion that I had as a as a young woman to change the way that we treat one another. I, I wanted to do something to uh, change the laws so people would be treated equally. And so much of that is involved in our public policies. You know, you can change the laws. I found out later that that one of the problems that we have today is we, we didn't focus enough on changing people's hearts. So I'm still hopeful of changing people's hearts. Political activist and former state senator Polly Baca spoke with Ryan Warner in June. Fifty years ago, Baca was part of Robert F. Kennedy's presidential campaign and was in the same hotel in Los Angeles on the night he was killed. In 1968, many people felt like America was coming apart at the seams. The assassinations of Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. and Robert Kennedy left emotions raw. 
The Vietnam War was tearing the country apart. Then in August came the chaotic Democratic National Convention in Chicago, where police and anti-war protesters clashed in bloody riots. Keep the bayonets high was the order about face. And now they've got the demonstrators on the run of face One of the organizers of that protest was Rennie Davis, who now lives in Berthet. He gave Ryan a behind-the-scenes look at what happened during those violent days. What resonance do those protests in Chicago have for you? Why do, why do they still matter? Well, they matter because, I, in many ways, the parallel between 1968 and 2018 is pretty stark. You know, for your listeners who weren't even born in that time, it had sort of parallels to today's White House. I mean, things that were just fundamental you know, cultural, constitutional rights like the right to assemble, the right to petition your government for redress of grievances just because you were a citizen of the nation. And, uh, you know, it was it was like watching the sons and daughters of America get clubbed and beaten by Chicago police. And it wasn't just demonstrators. I mean, uh, newsmen were, were beaten bloody and delegates from to the convention who turned out to lend moral support to us. Uh, they were beaten too. Martin Luther King's organization had a mule train that came right down Michigan Avenue as a part of a poor people's campaign. And that was beaten and clubbed while the whole world was watching. More, more people watched 50 years ago than watched the first man landing on the moon. Uh, You say that you had wanted to bring a million people to Chicago to the 1968 Democratic National Convention. You wanted these protests to be peaceful. And you had started to lay the groundwork for that uh, by visiting Chicago in advance and trying to get the permits you needed for such a gathering. But that was not easy in Chicago. Yeah, you know, the the mayor of Chicago just dug in. I mean, we actually had the support of the of the federal government for permits. Uh, Ramsey Clark was attorney general at that time. He sent out a top assistant, uh, Roy Wilkins, to meet with me first to just you know see, make his own assessment of where our coalition was at. He was convinced that we were committed to nonviolence. And he went into the mayor's office to basically pitch the case from the from the perspective of the federal government and the Democratic Party that this was in the national interest that permits be granted. Uh-huh. But uh, it was really mayor's uh, the mayor's decision not to grant permits, and that we understood coming to Chicago that twelve thousand Chicago police would be mobilized to basically clear the streets and the parks, you know, of, of any demonstrators. What was the first whiff you got that this event might turn violent? Did you have some sense when it began that it could go in that direction? I I honestly, Ryan, had a plan A and a plan B. You know, our plan A was that we would march uh to the International Amphitheater nonviolently and assemble on the night of the nomination outside the convention hall, you know, as supporting our position to end the war in Vietnam. But quite honestly, we didn't have permits for that. So we gathered in a park way north side of Chicago called Lincoln Park. And uh, I I just tried – my plan B was just to basically prepare to have – uh, the ability to deal with whatever might happen, although I never really fully anticipated how severe it would be. 
Uh, we had close to a thousand uh, medics uh, on on hand to support anybody if there was, you know, clubbing by police. Uh, the police came in and cleared the park. It was they they moved into the park clubbing and beating, and then they moved through the park and actually clubbed people who just were Chicago residents sitting out on their porch watching what was happening. Earlier that day, you you took quite a beating yourself. Tell us about that. Well, at the very last minute, the the Chicago authorities decided to grant a permit in the middle of the day. This was on Wednesday. August 28th in Grant Park, which wasn't downtown, the downtown area, but but uh, next, next close to the lake. And, uh, you know, a permit to us meant, you know, a, a legal binding agreement that we had a right to assemble. We had mothers turn out with baby strollers and their children, you know. Uh, what happened was a, a young teenager uh, went to the flagpole and lowered the flag to half mass. And with that, the police came in and, and beat people as they came and arrested him and pulled back out. I was on a bullhorn and, you know, reminded the police that we had a legal permit and this was our right to be here and assemble, you know. And rather than pull back, which was my suggestion for the peace of the day, they invaded again. And, and, and you ended when, up in the hospital. Uh, I, I did. You know, I, I was clubbed. I was – it wasn't so much the being hit on the head but being hit on the back over and over again. A little chain link fence in the park probably made my day. Uh, I was able to climb under that fence and just have two or three seconds to stand up and, and get into the crowd before I, I passed out. You were, I think, at a friend's house the evening of – continued protests that Wednesday, watching in a way from afar this, again, nonviolent, that was at least the intention, protest turned even further violent. It it did, you know, and, and the, uh, you know, you never want to see this happen. And I, I, I mean, I, I can't really say, well, the ends justify the means. I would never say that. It's just that we felt that not only do we have the right to oppose the government's policy in a war, but we also had the right to assemble. And so the, the courageous part, I suppose, and the controversial part for some was that we made the decision to go to Chicago without a permit. Mm-hmm. And uh, that was, in my view, the the appropriate thing to do, although it, it led to a mayhem. Davis and other protest leaders, including Abby Hoffman, Tom Hayden, and Jerry Rubin, became known as the Chicago 7. The group was eventually charged with inciting a riot, but after a highly publicized trial, they were cleared. Up next, a member of the Denver Broncos faces discrimination on the gridiron. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. It's been a long, long, long time. You're back with Colorado Matters from CPR News. I'm Anthony Cotton. On October 6, 1968, Marlon Briscoe of the Denver Broncos made pro football history when he became the first African-American starting quarterback in the modern era. 
However, even after a stellar season, he was out of a job the next year. He spoke with Ryan about race, quarterbacking, and his legacy. You had to fight for your chance to play quarterback in the pros. Even though you had played quarterback through high school and at the University of Nebraska, the Broncos put you at defensive back. What was your response to that choice? Well, first of all, I started when I was Pop Warner. So I've been craving that position for a long time, since I was 10 years old. Hmm. When I got drafted uh, out of college in the 14th round by the Broncos, they, of course, drafted me as a defensive back. Uh, That's what they did to black quarterbacks who, if they did make it to the uh, collegiate level uh, playing quarterback, that's what they did. They said that, you know, you're a great athlete, so you can play other positions. What do you think their reasoning was? Well, because they didn't think a black man could think, throw, and lead on that level. I had a stellar career in college as a quarterback. I made All-American Recently, a couple of years ago, I made the Collegiate Hall of Fame. And I negotiated my own contract. And in those negotiations, you know, I told the Bronco Brass that I would play defensive back, but they had to give me a three-day trial at quarterback. They thought I was crazy. <laughs> How is a 14th-round draft choice when it's only 17 rounds going to dictate, you know, the conditions of a of a contract. I said, well, you know, that's what I'm going to do. If, if, if I can't get that three-day trial, I was going to go ahead and teach school. All I wanted was a forum to showcase my skills. I never thought that I was going to get, you know, a level playing field, but they acquiesced to my so-called demands. You made history when you started for the Broncos at home on October 6th, 1968 at the newly renamed Mile High Stadium in Denver. What do you remember about taking the field on that day? Well, it wasn't symbolic to me. It was something that I had always done. I was a quarterback, not a black quarterback, a quarterback. So I never really realized the impact that that day would have until Ebony Magazine uh, did this four-page spread on me. And I realized then the importance not only for black America, but for white America as well. What was the reaction from fans that day at Mile High? Well, they were very, very supportive. See, that was one of the fan backlash was one of the fears of management and, you know, naysayers that if a black man was playing quarterback, that the fans wouldn't show up for the games. I'll tell you what, Denver fans backed me wholeheartedly. And, you know, with those fans showing up week by week by week, you know, that was a tribute to Denver at at that particular time. I don't know if I would have been able to pull it off uh, in any other city. I don't know. And then you have to look at another thing, like the players on the team. My entire line, beside Walt Highsmith that particular day, my entire line were white players from the South, except Mike Hearn. He was from Ohio State. They were from Mississippi, uh, LSU, uh, Alabama. And not only had they not played with or for a black quarterback, when they were in college until they got to the pros, they never played with a black player. Wow. And so... But, but you, you that, had their you know, respect. 
Exactly. Mm -hmm. Exactly. It's interesting. You've said that you're not a black quarterback. You're a quarterback. And my understanding is that, that fans who came to see you didn't come to see the black guy. They came to see the little guy. Exactly. <laughs> you, you were exactly five ten and about one hundred seventy seven pounds, so not the biggest player by any means. Well, I was six three two ten on Sunday. <laughs> <laughs> you had a great season. You threw for three hundred thirty five yards in one game, a rookie record that stood until broken by John Elway. Uh, you even rushed for three hundred eight yards. And yet, when Broncos head coach Lou Saban started planning for the next year, he didn't want you as quarterback. How did you find out? Well, I I had like six hours from graduating. So I decided to go back and, and, and get my degree back in Omaha. Then I get a phone call from my cousin telling me that they were having quarterback meetings with, and why wasn't I there? And so uh, I finished up my uh, requirements to get my degree, surreptitiously went to the Broncos headquarters, walked in the front door and, and sat down and waited for them to come out of their office, uh, the three of them and, and, the, and the quarterback coach. They walked out of the room and looked at, they couldn't even look at me in, in the eye. And do you think all this is because you were black? Absolutely. You know, fan reaction, player reaction, you know, no, none of those neg negative things played out so they couldn't use those as an excuse you left the broncos to play for buffalo and later for the miami dolphins won two super bowls but you never played quarterback again and i wonder if that was painful for you oh absolutely i, I was runner-up for rookie of the year and not only did i have bronco records i still have nfl records i was only player in the history of the NFL that started at four different positions. I was also the first black holder of extra points and field goals in the history of the NFL. I also have 18.2 yards per completion, which is still in the, in the archives of the NFL. So not to be able to fulfill that ate at me probably through my life, just like it, it has other black quarterbacks. I think of civil rights and football is still really connected. I mean, today there's controversy around football players kneeling during the national anthem, and I'm eager to hear your thoughts about that, Marlon. Well, Colin Kaepernick, he, he did what he did with dignity and grace. His M.O., his reasoning for kneeling and, and whatever, was no disrespect to the, the flag of the United States. It was an open protest about conditions as it relates to black men and the police in this country. And I've been, trust me, I've had a reason to understand how that works because I've had, you know, in my lifetime as a black man with the, the white police establishment, they raised their ugly head. You know, the kid can play. He took him to the Super Bowl. And yet, you know, he's not going to get any takers because that's, he became a political, excuse, of, <laughs> excuse the uh, pun, he, he became a political football. <laughs> and the kid should get an opportunity to play the game that he loves 
and can still play. Marlon, thanks so much for being with us. Thanks for having me. Uh, Enjoyed it. Go Broncos. Fifty years ago, former Denver Bronco Marlon Briscoe became the first African-American starting quarterback in the modern era of pro football. We spoke with him last November. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. I'm Anthony Cotton, and here's Ryan with a tale from the crypt. The dead who live on living flesh. The dead whose haunted souls hunt the living. Fifty years ago, the undead cemented their place in people's collective nightmares with this iconic film. of the living dead. Here's the weird thing. In 1968, George A. Romero's Night of the Living Dead wasn't considered a zombie film, but now it's widely credited with jumpstarting that genre. Horror expert Stephen Graham Jones of CU Boulder is here to explain. He's a horror novelist himself, English professor, and if there is such a thing, a zombieologist. That that works for me. Okay, you've certainly written a lot about zombies. If George Romero didn't think of his shambling characters as zombies, like, how did he view them? George Romero grew up on the Haitian zombie, the voodoo zombie, which is a dead person who is risen from the grave by a sorcerer and turned into a form of free labor. And when he did Night of the Living Dead, he and John Russo, they were coming up with just a monster, basically. They were making a monster movie, and in the movie, they're called Murder Happy People, I believe, possibly ghouls. Nobody calls them zombies in Night of the Living Dead. And then you say he was raised on the Haitian zombies, so mm-hmm. zombies cross cultures, apparently. Oh, they do, yes. I mean, zombies have been around. Every culture has a version of the zombie, but the zombie really got a lot of steam behind it in Haiti. That's where the native religion and Catholicism and the West African religions all came together and spit up the zombie. So zombies cross cultures. Drop a few more examples, and then I'd love to have you reflect on why you think they do. The earliest I've found is the Rolangs, R-O-L-N-A-G-S, out of Tibet, you know, thousands of years ago. And there was two types of those, actually, which is interesting. One of them is analogous to the Haitian zombie, and one of them is analogous to the Romero zombie. There's the tantric zombie, which Wait, was... tantric? Tantric, which was risen just to do work for people, basically, or to do misdeeds for people. But the demonic is a corpse that has been animated by an evil presence and it goes out and ravages and eats and tears with its mouth and it's neat because in tibet if you look at some of the ancient architecture it has really low doorways that don't really make sense but it makes sense to a culture that believes in relangs because relangs because they're risen from the grave they can't bend their knees and so relangs can't bend over so if you build a short doorway they can't get through the doorway ha and what what do you think it is about cultures that have universally identified this idea It's how we caution ourselves to have proper relationships with corpses. If in Rolang's stories, a lot of the stories you'll read 
or find have grandfather dying in the winter and instead of going out and doing the hard work of chipping into the frozen ground to bury him they just wrap him up and put him in the corner and say we'll do that in the spring when the ground is softer but that is leaving a potential source of infection just biological infection not even supernatural infection in the house and wait zombies are like psas they're like public service announcements for how to handle your dead exactly yes Oh my goodness, you just blew my mind. That, that's, you find it in the Middle Ages with revenants too. You have zombies rising to just wreak havoc in the villages and towns. And what's interesting about the revenants is it's never one person that goes and kills them. It's usually a community. The community has to band together to do away with the zombie, which is to say the whole community has to adopt, adopt a hygienic relationship with corpses in order to keep the community safe. But they obviously serve a point beyond that now. They do, yes. Uh, zombies are a way, they've always been a way for us to express our fascination with our own death. We don't, we know what death is, sort of. We know it's the cessation of life. We don't really know what's on the other side. And zombies allow us one glimpse into that. But we keep telling ourselves zombie stories. Like right now, we're telling ourselves zombie stories as a way of cautioning ourselves about limited resources and overpopulation. Now, why is Night of the Living Dead so revolutionary? It brought four things to the zombie that were not there previously. It brought headshots, which are very important, flesh hunger. It brought decomposition and infectiousness. The first thing was headshots. What do you mean by headshots? Headshots, that's the manner in which you kill them. Shooting them in the arm doesn't matter. Shooting them in the chest doesn't matter. You've got to hit them in the brain. Okay, that is born out of Night of the Living Dead. Yes. Then contagion, right? So the idea mm-hmm. isn't that a sorcerer has brought these folks back to mm-hmm. life, but it's some sort of some sort of bug or virus. Radiation, anything. In Night of the Living Dead, it was meant to be radiation from a Venus probe, but that got edited out. Huh, Okay. Uh, but that it could spread from one person to the other is important. That's very important, yes, because then you're right. It requires no agent to go and infect everybody. They infect each other and it spreads. It gets exponential real fast. Okay, what were the other two? Remind me. Uh, they were decaying. Before Romero and, and Russo's Night of Living Dead, zombies were they were risen from the grave in the state that they went into the grave. They weren't decayed. But... Romero gave us people rising from the grave in decayed states. Which, again, is another level of terror. It is. And finally? Flesh hunger. Flesh hunger. Yes. The idea that zombies wanted to eat you. Mm-hmm. That does not appear in, say, the Haitian version of the zombie. Not in the Haitian version, it does not, no. And, and can you take us back to 1968? Like, what was the reaction to all of these levels of creepy? The movie caught fire. They didn't expect it to catch fire. They they expected to make their money back. But this movie, it came out at the time of civil unrest. There was, I mean, civil rights were a big issue. Right. It's 1968. Gosh, it's the year in which RFK and Mm -hmm. MLK are assassinated. Mm -hmm. It's the Vietnam War. Mm -hmm. And you're only, what, uh, six years on from, five years on from the assassination of President Kennedy. Correct. Correct. And you've also got the, the hippie culture, the youth culture, rising against the establishment. And in Night of the Living Dead, you have the daughter rising to kill the parents. And that really spoke to a lot of people's anxieties. So you think that this was a reflection of its time? I think it was. I don't think they consciously mapped one-to-one. I Mm -hmm. think that Romero and Russo were just part of the times. And so any story they told was going to probably contain that. 
And then The Walking Dead. We we can't talk about zombies without touching on that series. Hey, mister, you even know what's going on? I woke up today in the hospital. Came home, and that's all I know. But you know about the dead people, right? Yeah, I saw a lot of that. Out on the loading dock, piling trucks. No, not the ones they put down. The ones they didn't. The walkers. What is The Walking Dead done? And are we at the the end of the zombie craze, do you think? I think the zombie craze actually ended a little bit ago. I believe Walking Dead has been such a successful show that it's propped up the zombie boom or zombie renaissance for kind of an artificially long time. Why do you think it's declining? I think it's declining. Just I think fads burn out in horror over and over. We usually go from zombies to vampires and back and forth. Every once in a while, we try to mix a werewolf in. We try to, <laughs> we'll try to mix a mummy in, but they don't really catch on as good as zombies and vampires. Stephen Graham Jones is a University of Colorado professor and horror novelist. He spoke with Ryan about one of his passions, zombies. Throughout today's show, we've heard music from local artists doing songs from 1968, and we'll leave you with one final performance. This one comes from Denver singer-songwriter Anthony Ruptak, who chose the Simon and Garfunkel anthem, America. 1968, there was so much turmoil and so much change happening and uh, so many barriers being broken down and new ones being put up. The idea of being in America, but you're looking for America, really stands out. Like you're waiting for that fabled dream to be realized and something you can identify with. Let us be lovers, we'll marry our fortunes together. I've got some real estate here in my bed So we bought a pack of cigarettes and misses Wagner's pies And we walked off to look for America Kathy, I said as we boarded a greyhound Michigan seems like a dream to me now It took me four days to hitchhike from Saginaw I've gone to look for America And I've gone to look for America Laughing on the bus, playing games with the faces She said the man in the gabardine suit was a spy And I said be careful, his bow tie is really a camera Toss me a cigarette, I think there's one in the raincoat We smoked the last one an hour ago So I looked at the scenery And she read her magazine And the moon rose over and over
lost, I said, for I knew she was sleeping. I'm empty and aching, and I don't know why. Counting the cars on the New Jersey Turnpike, all come to look for America. Yeah, they've all. Denver singer-songwriter Anthony Ruptak performing Simon and Garfunkel's America. Thanks for listening as we looked back at 1968 and stories from one of the most turbulent and eventful years in U.S. history, as told by Coloradans who were there. I'm Anthony Cotton. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News.